of Exodus. Our Father, uh, we know that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, so sharp, in fact, that it uh, pierces our spirits, our souls. It shows us what's right, it shows us what's wrong, and above all, it shows us your Son. It points us to Him. It convicts us of our sin in relation to Him and points to Him as our only hope and Savior. And we pray that you would do all these things right now as we consider it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have got two pictures for you on screen, and I have a question for you. Which one best represents the Christian life? A walk in the park or running the gauntlet? Uh, if, of course, if something's a walk in the park, colloquially, it just means it's, it's easy, it's relaxed, something enjoyable. Uh, some of the risk assessors and risk management folks in here are like, well, a tree could fall on you or a rabid dog could come out and bite you or something random like that. But fundamentally, a walk in the park is something easy, stress-free, something enjoyable. Running the gauntlet, however, is completely different. Uh, I, I grew up watching Saturday Night TV in the 90s, and the TV show Gladiators um, was rich pickings, as so I thought. Um, and one of the games on Gladiators was this game called The Gauntlet, right? And the aim of the game was to run from one end to the other within 30 seconds. Sounds simple enough, except for the fact that you had guys called Rhino, Hunter, Warrior, Cobra, and Wolf in the way. And they were all built like the side of a house. And they had sticks as well to stop you in your way. Now, as the referee's whistle went, you would expect it to go as you would expect it to go. The, the contestants set off confidently, only to be floored by the very first gladiator that they came to. Uh, if they somehow managed to scramble to their feet or even just crawl past them, there was another gladiator waiting who would pummel them to the floor as well. Then another, and then another, and then another. The hits just kept on coming. And I start with that because I think that's how it must have felt for God's Old Testament people, Israel, that we've just read about in this passage in Exodus 17. These are people who have been rescued from slavery, delivered from their enemy, and have, if you like, crossed over from death to life. They are on their way to the finish line, if you like, of the promised land. But it is no walk in the park. It is like running a gauntlet. We've seen in recent weeks that they have scrambled past opponents like hunger and thirst, and themselves really, and they've managed that with God's help. They're just a few months into their journey, however, when the Amalekites attack. The hits just keep on coming. And I want to say that it's no different for those who call themselves Christians. The Christian life is no walk in the park. It, it, it is like running a gauntlet. And I think we could stop right now and go around the room, each taking a turn to tell what life has been like since we started following Christ. And you know what we'd hear? Story after story that shows in real life, the hits keep coming. We face three snarling gladiatorial opponents, according to the Bible, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They stand in our way. They sometimes throw us down. Sometimes we're hit because we've not been guarded enough, not as guarded as we should have been. Sometimes by, we're hit by stuff that we just could never have seen coming. 
And the fact of the matter is, from the start line of the Christian faith, en route to the finish line of the new heaven and new earth, the Christian life is like a gauntlet. And here's what I want us to realize. You, we, will not make it through the Christian life without powerful, effective prayer. You're just not going to make it without powerful, effective prayer. Now, you might say, well, that's just wonderful, Liam, because my prayer life is shocking. Uh, So I'm done, am I? Well, I'm not talking about your prayers. I'm actually talking about Christ's. And just as Moses praying on the hill in our story today made all the difference on the battlefield, so I want you to realize that Christ praying in heaven makes all the difference for us down here on earth. And let me show you where we get that from. Let's walk through Exodus 17, 8 to 16. I'm going to walk through it in two points. So if you're taking notes, number one, you need to fight. Number two, you need prayer. Simple. Number one, uh, you need to fight. And here's why. Uh, God's people always have an enemy to contend with. Uh, For Israel on this occasion, it was the Amalekites. Look with me, verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the the Israelites at Rephidim. Now, who are these guys? And uh, what's their beef with the Israelites? Well, we know that they are, uh, historically, they're descendants of Esau, who was the brother of Jacob from whom the Israelites are descended. Uh, They're like Israel's uh, long-lost second cousins in a way, but um, there, there may be family tensions because of that background, but we're not sure. What we do know is that they don't have much of a conscience, these Amalekites. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 to 18, Moses writes for us a little mini commentary on this event. And he says, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out. They met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. Literally, in the Hebrew, cut off your tail. They had no fear of God. So these Amalekites had no fear of the Lord and resolved to live however they wanted. They were quite happy to attack these defenseless refugees. Worse than that, the stragglers at the back, the old, the sick, the children, the nursing mums. Now, those are the kinds of enemies Israel had to contend with as they ran their own gauntlet. But what about us? Well, for Christians, while enemy attacks in some places in the world can certainly be physical, our enemies are spiritual. Like Israel, as I've said, we've been delivered from our captivity, our captivity to sin. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 tells us, that Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities of hell and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by his cross. But those enemies, Satan and his armies, have not yet surrendered. Wounded, but not, uh, but not um, relenting from their ambushes. They ambush us and luring us through temptation into traps, leading us through accusation into pits. And yes, Sometimes, as I've said, physically forcing us into a corner. Now, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 
describes our experience not as a walk in the park, but confirms that it's a struggle, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So if our foe is that formidable, then what should we do? Well, God's people need to ready themselves for the fight. When you look back at Exodus chapter 17, what do we find Moses commanding Joshua to do? Uh, basically, Israel is being told to defend themselves by use of proper means. Look with me, verse 9. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of your men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Now, that's new. Okay, at the sea, just two or three months before this, when Israel was attacked by Pharaoh's army, God fought for them. They didn't swing a single sword. But here in the desert, they have to fight. And verse 13 says, Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Now, there's more to it than that. But before we think about Moses' hand in the battle, let's not forget that we as Christians need to defend ourselves by the proper means as well. We gear up. Ephesians 6 tells us, as Katie included in her, in her uh, video testimony there, we put on our armor, defending ourselves and each other, especially weaker brothers and sisters, with gospel truths. And we take up our swords, not a physical sword with sharp edges, but a book with thin pages. Uh, it's no less weak. In fact, it's stronger than anything. This is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we not only gear up, we go out together. We fight this fight together. We are not on our own in this fight against sin, against temptation, and the spiritual forces of this dark world. Now, we're not a nation state like Israel were, so we're not going to gear up with physical swords and go and fight anyone. But we are a family. We are a kingdom. It's a kingdom that is global. It's a family that is united and glued together in love. In fact, I often think this when I'm going to the rugby at Murrayfield. I often look up and, you know, everything's like hashtag as one. It's a great slogan, you know. Basically, the whole message is we do this together. It would maybe help if we had more than 15 players on the pitch. So maybe, maybe a few more added to the scrum would actually help us. But anyway... We do it as one. I wish we had something, a slogan like that. I wish we had taken that slogan for Charlotte Chapel because that's how it's meant to be in the Christian life. We go as one. We do it together. Indeed, if we don't gear up and if we don't go together, then we are isolated. We are, we are making ourselves the spiritual tail, easy pickings for the enemy. And so let's defend ourselves by the proper means. The Christian life is not a walk in the park. It's more like running a gauntlet. So read your Bible, pray. Gather with God's people, hear God's word preached, and celebrate in the ordinances together, baptism, Lord's Supper, regularly. It's not an individual thing. It's a church family thing. But that's only half the story, of course. Joshua and his his. Uh, pulled together army, gone off to fight. Victory in the valley, of course, wasn't really won in the battlefield. As we saw just from a plain reading of this text, it was won in the hill, which tells us that fundamentally we need point to prayer. We need prayer. Now, that's what Moses is going 
to do when Joshua goes off to fight. Verse 9 tells us, Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. And we see Moses here is interceding for those in battle. Now, interceding is just a fancy term for asking for something on someone's behalf. Moses here is interceding and praying for God's people, the guys on the battlefield. How do we know that? Well, by his posture, uh, Jews stand to pray. Uh, Jews pray with their hands raised or palms upward. You read about that in all sorts of places. Psalm 63 verse 4 is one example. And while we don't hear any words coming from Moses' mouth, we can be sure he's praying. But what is he praying for? Well, again, though we don't hear the words, I think we can be sure that he is praying for God's power, for God's power to act. How do we know that? Well, because of what's in his hands. He's holding the staff of God in his hands, and this staff in Moses' hand is a symbol of God's power. It has been that throughout the book of Exodus. Because this isn't the first time this staff has made an appearance in this book. In the hands of Moses, this staff uh, turned into a snake, chapter 3, to prove God's power. Triggered several of the plagues. You can read about that in chapters 9 and 10. It divided an entire sea, chapter 14. And even caused water to spring from a rock earlier in chapter 17. It is uh, a symbol of God's power. And Moses' actions here are really an unmistakable sign of dependence on God and a pleading of his power in order to actually succeed in the battle. And that's what prayer is doing. That's what prayer is even for us. It's an acknowledgement of our need. We can do nothing about the situation that we're in. And it's an acknowledgement of his power that he can do something about this. And that is why we as Christians, need to pray. Someone has described, uh, I can't remember who it was, couldn't even find it on Google. Um, Someone has described prayer as grasping the arm of God's omnipotence. Uh, And that is really what Moses is doing as he prays, as he holds aloft this staff. He's laying his hands on the power of God in heaven and asking for that power to be made known on earth. In fact, I'm convinced that that's what verse 16 is all about. Look with me. It's a tricky text to translate. Uh, In the the translation that we use here, the NIV, it says, hands were lifted against the throne, suggesting that it's the Amalekites' hands that are in view. Their hands were against God's throne. Therefore, as you read on, that's why he's going to be against them. But other translations Um, including the ESV and the CSB, translate it as a hand to or a hand upon the throne of the Lord. And that is Moses' hand is the hand that's in view. Moses' hand was upon or, if you like, touching or toward the throne of God in prayer. And that makes much more sense to me. You can have a look yourself and figure it out. But No Amalekite hands are mentioned in the text. And Moses' praying hands are mentioned six times. In any case, it worked, verse 11. The summary is, as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. His prayers for the battlefield were powerful 
and effective. He was pleading the power of God through prayer from influence, not from up there, to happen down here, and that's what he saw. But there was a problem. Moses was unable to maintain his prayerful posture. It's like the spirit was willing, but the body was weak. He gets tired. You can understand why. You ever tried holding your hands up for a prolonged period of time? It's, it's really unbelievably weird how heavy your arms become, isn't it? You ever done that thing where, have you ever been that kid at school when you put your hand up and the teacher's saying yes to someone else and yes to you and yeah, what do you think? What do you end up doing? Yeah, you have to support it, don't you? You have to actually do that and then you start rocking your head against it just to kind of deal with the pain because it's not, it's not easy. It's hard. He gets tired. The hands start to drop. He needs support. Verse 12, when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. He's an old man. He needed a chair. Fair play. Aaron and her held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. That's a long time. Now his friends got him a chair and propped his hands up, and it's just as well they did for 11b, whenever he lowered his hands the Amalekites were winning. Now, that's a major problem. Do you know what this tells us? It tells us that we need more than human help in the fight against evil. Human help is great. Praying friends are a huge blessing to us. Praying churches, even more. People who bear us up before God. But if we are dependent on people who are just as weak as Moses, people who tire, people who forget, people who sin, people like us, we're just not going to make it. We will not make it through the Christian life without more serious, powerful, and effective prayer. But the good news is we do have someone praying for us, and his name is Jesus. He is the one who is interceding for us. Jesus is your mediator, friend, as he is mine, and we can rely on him. Like Moses with Joshua, if you like, he sends us out to fight as missionaries. We often sing, like, to love captive souls and rage against their captor. How? Well, by proclaiming the good news of the gospel that sets people free. But he also sends us out to fight as members, to love one another, to rush to protect the family of God when one another's attacked. And like Moses, Jesus prays for us. Like Moses with the Israelites, Jesus does for his church. Right now, as the battle rages on, and as the hits just keep coming, he is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Always. How glorious is that? If the prayers of Moses, a mere man with a staff in his hands, were powerful and effective on the battlefield, how much more the prayers of Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man with scars on his hands, be powerful and effective in the battles that we face? You might say worriedly, well, what if, 
What if he stops praying or, or gets weak like Moses? Look again at Hebrews 7.25. The resurrected Christ, the eternal Son himself, always lives. Always lives. Always lives to intercede. Death tried to stop him once. It cannot stop him again. Didn't work. Tiredness doesn't bother him either. Isaiah 40, 28 tells us he does not grow tired or weary. That is why he's able to save completely, fully. Because Jesus prays for us, our faith will not fail us. Like with Peter, Satan may sift you like wheat, but because Christ prays for Peter, because Christ prays for us, our faith will not fail. Satan, because Jesus prays, Satan can't condemn us. The one who has declared us not guilty is at the right hand of the Father, as Romans 8 tells us, interceding for us. And because he prays, we can be sure that even the enemies that frustrate us and slow us down and affect us such enemies because he prays we can be sure will be blotted out like the Amalekites whose consciousless conscienceless assault on the weak ones of Israel's tale was viewed by God as an act of great evil as verse 14 says so that when God says, write this down so that everyone remembers, and Joshua and everybody basically who comes after him, help them to remember that I will be at war with them until the day I finally blot them out. What a word, what a description to use, to blot something out. Like there was something there, a mere spillage, but it was mopped up, kitchen roll, blotted out. Like it was never there, gone without a trace. That's God's judgment depicted in a word. Friend, if you're a believer, if you're trusting in Christ's age, don't you find this just wonderful? That you have one who intercedes for you while the hits keep on coming. I find that's the best news. When trial or temptation wrings the life out of you, when you're crushed by the weight of your own guilt, or Satan accuses you and says, give up, you're worthless. You can't even manage the most basic things regarding Christianity. What are you doing? We can remember this, that before the throne of God above, we have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. He'll not forget you. My name is written on his heart. He'll not stop loving you. I know that while in heaven he stands and nothing's going to stop him from doing that, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Every tongue is shushed because he prays. So look to him. The way a soldier looks to the banner of the commander on the hill. The Lord is your banner. Look to him. In verse 15, Moses builds this altar and calls it, the Lord is my banner. And the banner he has in mind isn't some kind of pop-up on your laptop or a trail behind a plane kind of thing. He's talking about a military banner, a flag that bears a military 
symbol, a flag that's used to signal troops in the field, a flag that in battle, if you look to it as your banner, you can look to it for instruction, advance or retreat or whatever, or you can look to it for inspiration. This is who you're fighting for. This is our nation's ensign, our people's sign. And as long as that banner was flying, the battle was not lost. Now, what banner did Joshua and his makeshift army have to look to? Well, not a flag, but a staff in Moses' hands, the symbol of God's power, raised above the battlefield constantly because of Moses and his friends. However the the troops felt that battle was going on the field, they could look up to that hill and see that staff raised aloft and know this is who we're fighting for, this is who is on our side. The Lord indeed was their banner. And we should look to Christ in exactly the same way. Jesus is Lord. He, the Lord, is our banner. We likewise can look to him for instruction, to know what we should do. We can look to him for inspiration and have him fuel our Christian living. And as long as he, our banner, is flying, the victory is ours and he always lives, so victory is certain. Though sometimes it does not feel like it, truly, because he lives, it is. So what do we look to in the heat of battle, friends? When you're running the gauntlet and you're floored by temptation or sin or by a a diagnosis of cancer or the grief that took your loved one, where do you look in the midst of the battle? If you're anything like me, you can have a tendency to look around an awful lot, almost despairingly, not knowing where to look for help. Or you might look to retreat to to things like career or to alcohol or to relationships to find help. But as Christians, we need to look up. And we need to look up more. To look to Christ, to consider him through the pages of the Bible, to speak about him more and more with one another. And this is how we see afresh the greatness of his love and the cross and the greatness of his power and his resurrection and get for ourselves that fresh juice, fresh energy for running the race, full pelt, like we ought to. If we're weary in the fight, look to the banner, get up, and go again. If we've retreated from the fight, look to the banner that is Christ and get back in it. And if you're here today and you would not call yourself a Christian, if you have not trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and find the news of his death and resurrection and the hope of heaven, the best news you've ever heard in the world, then you're on the wrong side of this battle. God says, if you're not for me, you're against me. And if, like the Amalekites, you have no fear of God, in other words, no real reverence for his majesty, his greatness, his goodness, his love, and his kindness, if you count all that as like, nah, it's nothing to me, then your end will be like the Amalekites. But Jesus 
The good news for you today is that Jesus loves defectors. He loves to send his troops, believers like those around you, armed with love in their hearts, and not a judgmental word, but loving words in their mouths to turn enemies to friends. Meaning that even today, you can rally to this banner that is a person called Christ by doing just as, and praying just as Josh told us in in his uh, testimony earlier on, to ask for forgiveness, believe in his son, and ask him to transform your life. He died and rose to open the way. He said so himself, the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life. And I pray you will. And join us in this fight. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're so glad that when we come to your word, um, we never find the, the experience of... Uh, our lives, something that's just sugar-coated. It is, it is told and retold as plainly as can be that there are trials and hardships, hard things to deal with in life, and that to be saved by you is the most wonderful of things, and to be saved by you means we can look forward to the greatest of all things, the new heaven and new earth, and yet uh, your word tells us that we will experience hits. It is like running a gauntlet. And thank you for giving us a banner to look to. Uh, Thank you for giving us the assurance of the intercessor in heaven. And while we know that we won't make it through this life without powerful and effective prayers of our own, we praise you that in him we have all that we need in his death on the cross in his heavenly intercession. And when he comes again, it will be glorious to us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.